Welcome back to the Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Ricardo Costa. Ricardo is also an accredited sports dietitian and he's the Associate Professor of Nutrition and Dietetics and Food at Monash University and has a special interest in the gut and athletes, which is what our topic of today will be. So welcome to the podcast, Ricardo. No, thank you very much for inviting me, Liz. Great to have you. Can you tell us first about your background and how you got into being interested about the gut? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll try to keep it as short as possible because like everyone, they have a is a big story in their journey to where, where they're at at the moment. Um, I guess my journey started back in uh, high school. So when I finished high school, I had the opportunity to um, move over to Europe and race on the European World Cup triathlon circuit. So I took that opportunity as a, you know, as a teenager to race on that circuit. And during my time there, I noticed that one of the biggest issues facing triathletes, especially when you go into the longer distances, you know, gastrointestinal complications, which are affecting, affecting performance. So it was something that already triggered sort of my interest. But after my career started to dwindle down because of, I guess the body just can't keep up with that load for so long and all the new, sort of the new generation coming through, I um, had the opportunity to go and study in the UK. So I did all my qualifications in the area of exercise physiology, sports medicine, sports dietetics and clinical dietetics. And then after mm-hmm. my professional qualifications, I had the opportunity to do a PhD uh, with Professor Neil Walsh out at University of Wales. He was up mm-hmm. at the Bangor campus. The PhD focused more on exercise immunology, so more the impact of exercise, stress, nutritional intervention, sleep deprivation, and ambient condition exposure on the immune response. But the gut did sort of play a role there in terms of the gut, the gut symptoms mm-hmm. to all these stresses. So after my PhD, I went into a postdoc, and my postdoc, again, went into my interest area, which is endurance exercise, more specifically ultra endurance, because during my PhD, mm. I had the opportunity to support some athletes who were doing sort of marathon de sables and some uh, ultra endurance challenges like Dr. Andrew Murray that ran from mm. top of Scotland all the way through to the Sahara Desert. Mm. Again, one thing that was coming up was all these gastrointestinal issues and also the link between gastrointestinal issues and hospital admissions and in some cases, fatalities. But when I went into the literature to find out, okay, what are the guidelines recommendations to support some of these athletes with gut issues, there's really nothing there. So I took the opportunity to a postdoc in the area of ultra endurance nutrition with a special interest in gut. And that led into, I guess, the the whole net last 10 years of exploratory and intervention research in how to manage gut issues in athletes, but more importantly, how to sort of prevent any gut issues in order not so the athlete doesn't actually have any health complications or a fatality. Yeah, I think not many people realise that, you know, once the gut shuts down, that's a, a major problem if you're continuing to exercise and there have been fatalities because of that. I, I think it's pretty less known. I mean, there's probably one famous Australian long-distance triathlete who had major surgery on his mm. gut because of that. He's obviously still alive, but... Uh, mm. Yeah, I think it's an underrated area. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, underrated. Not really talked about, but at the end of the day, it's it's quite a major one. Yeah. So when we're talking about the gut, can you kind of talk us through what the gut is and mm-hmm. what some of those symptoms that people may experience? 
mm. uh, even outside of exercise. Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about the gut, we're referring to everything from ingestion at the oral cavity all the way through, I guess, to release of waste, defecation at the, uh, I guess, the anal sphincter. And it's everything in between. And uh, when we talk about sort of the gut in terms of its segments, we're talking about gastrointestinal function. So the, the function of pushing the, the food and fluid from the oral cavity through to the end, the integrity of the gut. So the actual intestinal and um, stomach epithelial lining, the integrity of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then yep. we're talking also about the immune system and how it interacts with the gut, both locally within the gastrointestinal tract, tract in the lumen and also just Mm -hmm. outside the lumen in in circulation. And, of course, and then you've got all those microbes, so the the bacterial microbiome and also their byproducts in more specifically, I guess, short-chain fatty acids. So functional Mm -hmm. integrity, immune responses, and the sort of bacterial composition. The gut also links to the brain too, doesn't it? So uh, yes and no. So you've got to be careful when we use the terminology linked to the brain. So there, there is indirect connections from the gut in terms of neurotransmitters and hormones that are released from the, mm-hmm. the intestinal epithelium and they're released from the enteroendocrine cells that have implications, I guess, at the central nervous system, so in the brain. But there's, there's a, yeah. So there's an indirect communication there, but not like direct neural links from one to the other. Mm-hmm. We've just got to be careful okay. the terminology we use. And so, yeah, you were going to say the symptoms? Yeah, so as you mentioned, they, if there's... Uh, disturbance to these segments of the gastrointestinal tract of course an athlete or just general population can experience symptoms so that could be what we refer to as upper gastrointestinal symptoms so the gastroesophageal ones so belching bloating up a sense of fullness uh, upper abdominal pain uh, urge to regurgitate regurgitation and in some cases sort of projectile vomiting if if it's quite extreme Lower GI symptoms, so that refers to more the intestine, small intestine, large intestine. So that could be a lower abdominal bloating, lower abdominal pain, urge to defecate, and then uh, abnormal stools or even bloody stools. And then there's this other category. Other category refers to uh, nausea, systemic symptoms associated with that other, which could be a dizziness. And then there's stitch. So stitch is abdominal pain, but it's it's very specific. It's called yeah, acute transient abdominal pain, which is more linked to sort of the mechanical strain, the friction of the different organs is sort of the, the organs within that abdominal cavity. So it's not necessarily pain due to function or integrity. It's more to, to do with mm-hmm. the, the, the friction of the organs. Right. Wow. That's a, that's a lot of different areas yeah. that we need to cover. <laughs> um, so are there specific diseases that can cause issues with the gut as opposed to just the interrelationship of exercise? Of course. So any, any neural, since the gastrointestinal tract, the function of it is regulated by the nervous system. So uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, it has its own sort of enteric nerve activity. So it's, got, it's considered the second brain. So it's got its own uh, in, interactive neural pathways. Yep. But it does have also some central command. So any disease which has a neural element to it, so if we go into the extreme, so to, sort of d- diseases that have degeneration of, of the nerve cells, so motor neurons disease, multiple sclerosis, cerebral palsy, Huntington's disease, or all those types of conditions, of course, that will impact on gastrointestinal tract. 
Um, mm. When you look at stress, so conditions which are sort of stress prompting, uh, so irritable bowel syndrome, yeah. can also impact on the function of the gut and, of course, the symptoms develop. So there is, there is a strong link between various types of diseases and the uh, gastrointestinal tract. Mm. And so from an athlete's perspective, what are some of the things that can cause a gut upset or problems and some of these symptoms in an athlete mm-hmm. setting? Okay, so in an athlete setting, we're talking about the exercise stress. So as I just, I just previously mentioned, diseases that have the stress response or impact the nervous system, they're going to create mm-hmm. issues on the gastrointestinal tract. Well, exercise, what the athlete does, is a stress. So just, yes. just initiating exercise, you will already start to switch off or deteriorate the gut. The gut is not made mm-hmm. to cope with exercise. It's sort of rest and digest. It, it uses the parasympathetic nervous system so that when you're in the rest state, not necessarily when you're in the stress state. So from an athlete's perspective, as soon as you start exercising and you initiate that stress response, the gut function, so gastric emptying, peristaltic activity of intestine, digestive secretions, digestive enzymes and absorption capacity all reduces. And we've got right. quite a number of research studies that show that. So that's one thing. Mm-hmm. On the other sense is that athletes, when they exercise, the blood is redistributed to the muscles. And also if it's hot mm-hmm. day, to the peripheral circulation to help with getting rid of that excess heat. So there's less blood in the in the gut area. And that is similar to imagine situation where you put a cuff on your hand and you stop blood flow. Eventually, if mm-hmm. you don't release that blood, the cells will start to die because they're not getting that the nutrients, the gas transfer to keep the cell alive. Same thing happens with the gut. If you reduce the blood flow to those cells of the gastrointestinal tract, the cells actually start to die. And that's what we see with an athlete, mm-hmm. especially the endurance ones that go for a long period of time, we do see a lot of epithelial cell injury due to the lack of blood flow in the area. Right. How can we protect the gut? Or or I guess, you know, obviously we can't fast and we want to exercise. <laughs> so, um, you know, <laughs> athletes, you can't stop them from exercising, but you also shouldn't fast them before exercise so that their gut is clear of all food and fluids. Mm. And yeah, yeah, perhaps yeah. that's not even what we want. So... Why do some athletes seem to get more gut-related symptoms compared to other athletes? Because obviously there's a lot of athletes who don't get any gut-related symptoms yes. at all. Are they yeah. doing something yeah. special? Hmm. So what we've found is there's a lot of individual variations. So some are more tolerant and resilient than others. Others can cope with the symptoms. Not necessarily they have them, but they don't report them because they can deal with the, I guess, the discomfort and pain. Mm-hmm. So it's... From from that answering your question in terms of there's a lot of athletes, some athletes get them, some athletes don't. It's There seems to be a lot of sort of a predisposition to getting them or not getting them, which may be linked to all sort of mm-hmm. the mechanisms I've just previously mentioned. So those that don't get symptoms don't necessarily get so much damage or don't get uh, so much disturbance in the gastrointestinal function in response to exercise. They can tolerate feeding well, whereas those that mm-hmm. get symptoms, they, they have the gut shut off in response to the exercise, they have a lot more damage and they can't really tolerate food and fluids. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that in our studies. Right. There, there isn't, 
When we do AL cohort studies, there is a lot of individual variation in the gut markers, uh, both functional integrity and systemic that we see. And do you also see individual variation according to the type of exercise or the intensity? So for example, you know, when you were a triathlete, do people get the same symptoms when they swim Mm. versus when they bike versus when they run? Uh, Yeah, we do get variation in the modality as well. So when we've looked at the literature and we've run some studies ourselves, we we do see differences between swimming, cycling and running because of their positioning and the intensity and the pacing of each uh, of each sport in the real world. So example that I can give is consistently we see that running creates more gut symptoms than cycling. But then when we try to duplicate that in the lab and control all other factors that could influence the gut, when we run and, and, and cycle at the same exercise intensity with the same control conditions, there is no difference in the gut markers that we measure. But in the real world, we do see a big difference. So mm-hmm. It is the real world setting that's creating those gut disturbances, not necessarily the physiological response to the exercise stress. Another example I can give is swimming, Um, not necessarily in the triathlon, but open water, distance swimming. We Mm -hmm. do see athletes report substantial amount of gut symptoms simply because they need to feed, but they're in the horizontal position and you need gravity and pressure to actually help that food get through the gastrointestinal tract. So that could be one of the major causes. So positioning and then the real life environment of that sport. Okay. And so what can you do about this? If someone's getting symptoms that are are quite debilitating, and as you say, people experience those symptoms differently. Some people it's relatively mild and they'll deal with it. Other people it's so like they may have to stop because they've got to use a bathroom or they're projectile vomiting or they're just mm-hmm. in doubled over in pain. So so what process can you go through to to try and help an athlete? Yeah. Well yeah that's that's the million dollar question. And I can tell you there isn't <laughs> there isn't one pill and there's not one thing that works for everyone. Because mm-hmm. as yeah. as sort of we've just sort of discussed in little bits. There's a lot of individual variation and that individual variation is because the underlying causal factors for that individual or those individuals is completely different. For some yes. individuals, it could be dehydration because they've got so they've got a large uh, fluid loss through sweat. In others, it could be actually just the exercise stress shutting off the gastrointestinal tract, so the functional reduces. In others, it could be the blood flow and create an injury. The others could be they're just feeding. To, everything's fine with the gastrointestinal tract, but they're following these guidelines and recommendations that stating they should be having 120 grams of carbs, and, of course, they can't tolerate that and throw that up. Mm. Um, yep. So there's not one comment or one sort of intervention I could advise. It really depends on the individual. But we do have strategies in place for an athlete to go through in order to identify what's the underlying causal mechanisms and then from there distinguish which is the most important intervention processes they could use to try and manage or prevent or manage those symptoms. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so if if an athlete comes to me as a sports dietitian or comes to you as a sports dietitian and says, I'm experiencing pain, what are some of the questions that you want to ask them to to work out where that may be coming from? Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, we'll we'll first talk about it. Is the pain? Is it during rest? During exercise? If it's exercise, is it in training? Is it in competition? When is the onset? What's the duration? What type of, of symptom are you getting? What's the severity? What have you consumed before, during, or after that incident? What was the ambient conditions? What intensity exercise? Oh, yeah, so much. Mm. Um, <laughs> well, all, all I can say is that we have published papers that have the whole list that you can yep. the, interview the athlete through. So I'm not going to stand here and tell them yep. all because you can just access will, the papers and that will guide yep. you through. I'll make sure I but, put the papers in the notes uh, at the end Liz, of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. An important thing to mention is what you've just what you've just sort of asked now. That's the sort of the clinical assessment, the first step that yep. we take in identifying the issue and then putting an intervention in place. So this is the stage one, which will be the clinical yep. assessment. Okay. And so can can this change? Like is is it something that we can improve the symptoms for the athlete and help them become you know achieve all the things that they want to achieve Mm -hmm. or is this just something that they're going to be stuck with no it can be changed because all we need to do is identify what's the underlying causal factor so i'll give you an example we had a an athlete uh, international athlete that flew out to our lab to get tested Uh, we did the clinical assessment so we did all those questions that you asked we identified that his Ironman triathlete, so his swimming and cycling was absolutely fine. As when he gets off the run and he starts his run stage about five kilometers in, he just can't tolerate any more foods and fluids and goes into projectile vomiting and in most cases had to pull out of the race. Um, mm. Then once we had all this information, we did phase two and phase two was set up, simulate an exercise protocol similar to that that he experienced the gut issues. So we ran that. What we found was two things. First of all is that his sweat rate was far greater than what he could consume in foods and fluids. So no matter how much you could eat, drink, as he progressed through the protocol up to the four hours, his, his, I guess, body mass loss or his total body water was just going down and his core temperature proportion was going up. And Mm. then when his core temperature hit a certain stage, then we, we saw that he had excessively massive intestinal damage occurring. Right. That was one phase. So we've got an athlete which has substantial losses, but he can't feed or, or drink sufficient enough to meet those losses. So the mm-hmm. best intervention approach there was gut training because we have evidence to right. show that if you challenge the gut during training for two weeks, we can reduce symptoms up to 60%. We can increase glucose uptake. We can increase provisions of intake into systemic circulation. So he mm-hmm. did his sort of one-month gut training protocol going into the next competition, and voila, he, he won that Ironman without any oh. gut issues. So that was a wow. bit of a shock. Like, we, we weren't expecting results <laughs> that quick, but... Um, <laughs> For that individual, it was the gut training which allowed him to then tolerate the food and fluid and get that into the body to avoid any issues from occurring. But in yeah. another athlete, similar symptoms, so Ironman triathlete, female, going mm-hmm. into the run, was fine on the swim and bike. As soon as they got into the run, a couple of kilometers in, wasn't able to manage your food and fluid and was projectile vomiting. Similar, we mm-hmm. did a simulation protocol, but what we found there was the food and fluid intake was sufficient to meet her needs. She wasn't dehydrated. 
the control diet was providing enough food and energy to finish that the exercise protocol. But mm-hmm. when we did the trial on two occasions, we found that her gastrointestinal function, so the peristalt- gas- I guess the peristaltic activity, was absent. So in the rest situation, right. when we when we give, say, a lactulose challenge with an oral sequel transit time with a controlled dietary approach going in, we found that she actually had some momentum in the gastrointestinal tract to the test. But in response to right. exercise, there was no gastrointestinal functional response. So gastric emptying and peristaltic activity intestine was absent in exercise, right. but at rest it wasn't. So we needed to do something in order to stimulate the gastrointestinal tract. So again, gut training mm-hmm. would be an appropriate thing there. But again, gut training is more about getting the food into the intestine, into circulation. Hers problem was neurological. It's a shutdown of the actual functional activity of the, of the stomach mm-hmm. intestine. So we knew that she wouldn't be able to tolerate so much food and fluid. So we needed to decrease the volume of food and fluid during exercise. So the preparation, the preload going into the event was changed to sort of increase. Uh-huh. And then we yeah. re- actually reduced the volume and the concentration of carbs and fluids during exercise. And of course, she went into the race mm-hmm. feeling the symptoms still there, but she felt more comfortable because she wasn't force feeding herself to deal with these high volumes. It was slower yep. volumes yep. and was able to manage it better. But the symptom was still yep. there, but more mm-hmm. tolerable. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So there's lots of different things, but it's, it's pretty cool. And we've, we've heard from a couple of athletes that gut training has been important to them in terms of being able to tolerate more food or and or more fluid during an event. But I think it's interesting to sort of look at it from the flip side in that sometimes actually you need to, to do other strategies so that you're not loading the gut up quite as much, but you're still providing the, the nutritional requirements for, for that event. But yep. it, it looks yeah, like it's, it's sort of adapting. And what about some people may look at, you know, there's been a lot of media ad, you know, and, and lots of new food options available around FODMAPs, which is mm. uh, yep. kind of commonly or commonly used for irritable bowel disease mm. and, and things yep. like that. Does that have mm. a part to play, do you mm. think? Or, you know, yeah, where does oh, that well, thank you for asking work? me because we're the, we're the main research group that has done the research in this area. So I can answer yep. that very, very easily. So, <laughs> so yes, a 24-hour low FODMAP diet compared to a high FODMAP diet was sufficient to reduce gastrointestinal symptom severity, severity, not necessarily mm-hmm. incidence. So the exercise stress will cause the incidence. There's nothing you can do there. It's the exercise stress. But you can ameliorate some of the symptom severity by going on a low FODMAP diet. Now, there's a mm-hmm. flip side to that, and this is what we mm-hmm. found, which was we weren't expecting, and it was that the low FODMAP diet actually resulted in greater gastrointestinal injury, pathogenic translocation, and systemic mm. inflammatory responses. So the the damage and the immune activation was greater on the low FODMAP compared to the high FODMAP, and the reason for that was that if you provide a low FODMAP diet, there's low residue, low fiber, everything gets into circulation. You're pretty much clearing out the intestine. But 
in order to keep the blood flow in the area to protect against that sort of ischemic damage, you, you actually want content in the lumen because just having content mm. in the lumen and actually tr and the absorption of glucose keeps blood flow in the area. That's why consuming carbohydrates during exercise is probably the, the best thing to protect the gut because it actually keeps the blood mm. flow into the gut and actually creates no damage. We've seen it multiple times. It literally blunts the damage. You get no intestinal damage if you consume carbohydrates small and frequent during. So the high FODMAP diet, even though there's more severity of symptoms, it actually is a pro it's protective in terms of keeping the blood flow and not letting the intestinal cells being injured by the ischemic. I can actually take a step mm. further to say, in, in a yep. paper we cu I'm currently writing up right now, about to be submitted next week. And in the same study, another protective mechanism that we found was that the high fat map diet, even just 24 hours, was enough to increase the short chain fatty acids and alter the bacterial microbiome. So that might be also why it's protecting compared to the low FODMAP mm. diet, which I guess created less, less positive bacterial profile and had less short chain fatty acids in the lumen and in the plasma. So mm. although low FODMAP diet is good for symptoms, it is not good for gut health, whereas the high FODMAP diet is good for high for gut health. So yeah. what do you want? And I think, do you want the yeah. symptom or damage? And I think that choose. goes back. And it's interesting because I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, because it's so popular, there's a lot of doctors who say, oh, just go on a low FODMAP diet. But low FODMAP was never designed to be a long-term diet, was it? It was designed more as a yes. diagnostic tool. And yes. because people are following it long term they're actually potentially causing more problems because of that <laughs> drop in bacterial function and supplying like the good nutrients for the bacteria to be yeah. you know positively affected so i think you know yeah. that that kind of falls in line with that that concept as well mm, yeah absolutely yeah i guess to, to from an athlete perspective i can quickly sum up the whole fodmap intervention of what what people should be doing and is that you should be having a high fodmap diet with which acts as prebiotics on a daily yep. basis and with your, within your training but going into an important competition or a tournament tw you can go on to a 24-hour low fodmap diet and then consuming carbohydrates yep. small and frequent during the activity that's sort of the recipe for both reducing symptom severity and also protecting the, protecting the, gut the gut from the ischemic damage yep beautiful what about the use of probiotics that you know there's again that's another popular thing these days mm. in terms of probiotic capsules and things like that do you think mm. that's something yep. in the short term that can be useful um, mm. especially when athletes are traveling perhaps to foreign locations or is that something yep. that you'd rather have food-based probiotics mm. Again, I can answer that very quickly and I can give you the link to the systematic literature review we've recently done because mm -hmm. that's a question I was going I wanted to I wanted to answer because as you said, there's a lot of marketing, a lot of social media trends and comments of you know pumping in the pre the probiotics in order for gut health in athletes. but mm -hmm. I never came across any original studies to support that, even though some reviews are mm -hmm. saying it's positive. It's, it was a bit sort of contradictory. So we did our yep. own systematic literature review and probiotics does absolutely nothing, nothing in, based on the data that we have at the moment 
the prebiotics is more potent than probiotics. And it makes sense because if you just pump one little bit of bacteria and thinking that's going to make a big difference in increasing short-chain fatty acids or any intestinal epithelial cell integrity, mm-hmm. you're sort of putting your faith on very, very little package. Uh, probiotics mm-hmm. in the systematic view appear to be more potent in altering the um the bacterial composition, short-chain fatty acids, and some of the integrity biomarkers compared to probiotics that did absolutely nothing. And even symbiotics, within the symbiotic uh, studies, within our systematic review, it didn't do anything positive simply because symbiotics have more probiotics than prebiotics. So they're more focused on having the the bacterial species or strains with very little prebiotics. So of course, Mm -hmm. it's not going to do much. So that was the conclusion from our systematic review. And so when you say prebiotics, what specifically are we talking about there? So prebiotics could be FODMAPs. So FODMAPs are prebiotics. So GOS, Mm -hmm. FOS, uh, even even, uh, lactose. You've got resistant starches and you've got dietary fibres. So any uh, food source which the um, which is going to be sort of malabsorbed, not malabsorbed in a good way, that the the local commensal bacteria can use to, at the end of the day, produce yep. your short chain fatty acids, which will have both cellular and systemic uh, impact. Okay, so that's mostly fibre rich, whole grains, fruits, veg, those sorts of components yeah absolutely yeah exactly exactly yeah and again there's a lot of products out there that uh, sell themselves as prebiotics but again Mm -hmm. if you can get it from food sources it's it's more than enough example i can give is our 24-hour low and hot fat fodmap diet study it was a dietary intervention study we did not give any supplementation so we were easily able to achieve a prebiotic uh, quality with the dietary sources Yep. Perfect. Cool. So we're, you know, talking specifically about para-athletes and I know you don't do research in, in this area, but we have, I guess, you know, para-athletes are the same as any other athlete. They, they can still experience uh, some gastrointestinal issues. And as you mentioned earlier, there are some disease states such as MS, for example, and CP that perhaps neurologically are impacting on the gut. Spinal cord injuries is another one that can potentially neurologically impact on the gut. Do you think that you can use the same principles in a para-athlete irrespective of, you know, perhaps the cause of that gut-related issue? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I can give you a nice example is that a couple of years ago we had a, yeah, a para-athlete, was wheelchair athlete, a long-course triathlete that came to the lab in order to get tested to try and determine carbohydrate requirements for the CANS Ironman that it was, was training for. So we yep. did a, a simulation on his home. So he had a home trainer with uh, the arm cranks. So he came yep. to the lab, brought his, his trainer, put it into the, um, into, into the arm crank machine and did his, uh, so I guess, cycling simulation. We did breath by breath analysis and blood glucose responses. So during the feeding that he's used to. So basically it was the uh, carbohydrate and fluids intake, normal habits that he had. So we're measuring mm-hmm. intake, we're measuring glucose availability, we're measuring total carbohydrate oxidation in the muscle. We're look, doing blood sampling to do both hydration status. So with all that information, we're able to provide him 
his fluid losses. So this is how much he should be drinking in order to replace what's being lost. Mm-hmm. From that, we also determine what is his tolerance level for carbohydrate during, during exercise in what he can t- intake and also what's going into the blood and what his muscles using. So mm-hmm. he had his recipe of his fluid requirements and carb requirements for the Ironman of the cycle element. And then from there, of course, we then had to translate or, or, or mimic that into the sort of the, not the run phase, the but the, the, wheel, the wheelchair phase. Yeah. yeah. So not the arm mm-hmm. crank bike, but then the wheelchair marathon. So, and this is what we do for an able-bodied athlete. It's same theories, but just adapting the tools and methods to for the athlete that you have in hand. Yep, it's interesting because we have I've you know worked with a number of wheelchair athletes, and because they're track and field, and and particularly the marathoners, they're they're effectively lying on their stomach when they're actually wheeling the wheelchair. And so they're mm-hmm. often quite resistant to that concept of having food, e- even for training. Yeah. Like they, they'll do training sessions without any food because they're concerned about that. But what I'm hearing from you is that perhaps if we were able to get them to to do, to build up slowly some food and fluid before training that at least we can start to train and prime their gut a little bit and and we may actually progressively be able to get some improvement in both their symptoms but also their ability to then perform under stress in in mm. an event mm-hmm. yeah i i don't see i i don't see why not yeah i don't have much experience working in this area only very few but i don't see why we can't adapt yeah some of these methods and techniques for, for the um the para-athletes. Yeah, awesome. So, Ricardo, if I was to ask you what recommendations you'd have for athletes, coaches and practitioners, trying to put it in an, in as small a nutshell as you can, being that it's a very <laughs> complex and complicated area, what would your kind of key ticket items be? Key ticket items. So refer them to a sports dietitian to undertake a gut assessment and intervention, I guess. That's... <laughs> Put it in a nutshell, that's it. Uh, I guess there's two nutshells. One is the referral so they can do the full gut assessment and challenge and then prescribe intervention. And another one is do not trial and error approach. You're going to lose. You're going to lose. If you just keep Mm -hmm. trialing and erring, the athlete's going to get frustrated, the practitioner or the coach or whoever's going to get frustrated. You're not going to get anywhere. There's systems now in place where you do a clinical assessment, you simulate the exercise, you identify the cause, and then you intervene and you provide the appropriate strategy to yeah. that process because it'll you, you will you will achieve that first go. Yep. Yep. Perfect. Wow. Fantastic. I, it looks like you've still got lots of research to do in this area, though, Ricardo. What what's kind of the next cab off the rank for you? Yeah. Well. Um, Oh, geez, there's so much, I guess. Okay. Oh, geez, I can't answer that question. We've already learned that you're an overachiever considering how many degrees you managed to get early on and the amount of throughput you've had. If you ever look up Ricardo's name in the, in the research literature, literature, you'll find a lot, of, a lot of papers coming out. But, yeah, I'll put you on the spot there. Yeah. <laughs> so mean. Yeah. Well, at the moment, our main, um, our priority now is uh, because there's a lot more people going into ultra endurance. 
And mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot more challenging races, like 48 hours, seven day in extreme environments. People don't really know what they're up against and a lot of them are under-trained. And that's where we're starting to see mm-hmm. a lot of medical issues and fatalities occurring. So our our priority now is coming up with strategies to sort of stop this endotoxemia, bacteremia-induced sort of sepsis and multi-organ failure that's now mm. starting to come up a lot. So that's what we're mm. trying, that's what we're looking at, which strategies are best to, I mean, stop these fatalities from occurring in these, yeah. both sporting but also occupational, so military and mining and agriculture are also facing these issues as well. Wow, Yeah. We don't hear much about it, though, do we? No, no, it's, yeah, it's, it's under the carpet, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay, well, you've got plenty of work to get on with, so I'll let you get going, but you don't escape without one final question, which is what's your favourite food? My favourite food? Oh, God. <laughs> All right. I guess my, if it's on the spot, first thing that comes into my head was the Portuguese pastel nata, the Portuguese custard tart. Ooh. I guess that's the first thing that oh. popped into my head. Tell us about the Portuguese custard tart for those of us who are not familiar with it. I'm sure everyone would be, but, yeah, because it's quite popular around the world. So it's a it's a puff pastry base and then it's a, an egg yolk, sugary sort of flour mix that goes on top. And then it's put in a very high oven uh, to toast the top. So it's a cr- mm. very crispy, flaky pastry with a very sort of creamy, sweet, toffee, sort of caramelized top. Burst it's a post ra- post-race treat. <laughs> yes. Oh, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Ricardo, for your time and your expertise and your passion. The passion certainly comes through in the way you speak about this. And it, as, as you say, it's a very complicated area, but having a proper assessment and having someone walk through with you is is really important if you're getting symptoms that are disruptive to your training and or to to competition and yeah be careful of the gut because if you're not it can actually become quite a dangerous issue yep thank you les yep this podcast was very specifically looking at the influence of exercise itself on the gut and some of the factors that may cause gut-related symptoms. There's obviously other factors outside of exercise that can influence the gut, all of which do really benefit from a proper assessment from a sports dietitian and the understanding of context and the level of detail that you might need to drill down to I think is highlighted by what Ricardo's had to say. His comments about probiotics, again, were very specific to this looking at exercise-induced issues rather than the influence that probiotics may have on protecting the gut from travel-related illnesses and our immune system. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback, please leave it on our website and I will make sure that a couple of the papers that Ricardo has referred to are listed in the notes on this podcast website. Please join us next time when we talk to Brian Seaman, who is a wheelchair racer and multi-time Paralympian.